Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Lee Kronk. He is professor in the Department of Anthropology at the School of Arts and Sciences at Rutgers University in the US. His research and teaching interests include human evolutionary ecology, signaling theory, culture, and cooperation. He is a member of the Evolutionary Anthropology Society, the Human Behavior and Evolution Society, and the International Society for Human Ethology. Dr. Kronk is also co-director with Athena Ectipis, who I already had on the show, of the Human Generosity Project. He is the author or co-author of three books, That Complex Whole, Culture and Evolution of Human Behavior, from Mukogodo to Maasai, Ethnicity and Cultural Change in Kenya, and Meeting at Grand Central, Understanding the Social and Evolutionary Roots of Cooperation. So, Dr. Kronk, thank you a lot for taking the time to come oh. on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm flattered by the invitation. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so maybe my first question would be, and since you study culture and I'm very interested in exploring mm -hmm. topics related to culture on the channel, I've already had people that work on cultural evolutionary theory, we could right. call it, I think, like doctors Robert Boyd and Peter mm -hmm. Richardson. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about what cultural anthropology is about and maybe its historical relationship uh, with um, an evolutionary account of human behavior and uh, human culture. Because as far mm -hmm. as I understand it, until very recently, from an historical perspective, cultural, cultural anthropology has been sort of detached from a biological account of human nature, right? What I was saying is that in order to answer that question, I think... I need to go back to the 19th century, because in the 19th century, at the beginnings of cultural anthropology, uh, the, the prominent people, Lewis Henry Morgan, E.B. Tyler, Herbert Spencer, uh, and uh, picking up on them, also Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, uh, used an explicitly evolutionary approach, what they considered an evolutionary approach. So at the beginning there, uh, being evolutionary in a certain sense was part and parcel of being a cultural anthropologist. However, their brand of evolutionary thinking was not Darwinian. Uh, it, the Darwinian brand of evolutionary thinking at once is one that involves variation and differential reproduction of something, of some replicator. Um, and their brand didn't have that insight. They didn't, um, the, the, the approach to culture had not become Darwinian yet. And so their evolutionary approach was a sort of pre-Darwinian approach, which was uh, developmental. It, it was all based on an analogy between evolution of living things and evolution of societies and cultures and a sort of developmental process. And in a developmental process, the thing, the impetus, the force that, that guides it is, is in that thing from the get-go, from the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and that is fundamentally wrong-headed in the sense that there is no so uh, there's no force that simply propels evolution along. And that's what, why does Darwin's insight into variation and differential reproduction was so important. Um, and so the next question is, why did the, the, why was there a break between being a cultural anthropologist and thinking about things in evolutionary terms, even if, even if those terms are not Darwinian? Uh, the answer to that is Franz Boas. So Franz Boas came along. He was the founder of American anthropology. 
Uh, he came along, and in 1896, he published a very influential short paper in science called The Limits of the Comparative Method. And uh, by comparative method, what he meant was um, the, the, the method that people like Lewis Henry Morgan had been using of saying, okay, there is a ladder of development of societies, an evolutionary ladder of development of societies. And Lewis Henry Morgan's uh, names for the rungs on the ladder were things like savages and barbarians and civilization. It was very loaded language. And uh, then, so we have that ladder going back in time, but then we also have human cultural diversity in the present day, which they were just beginning to understand. And the comparative method would have been, and what Franz Boas was criticizing, was to take taking living societies, societies that we find around the world, and mapping them onto that ladder, saying that, for instance, that Australian Aborigines would be examples of middle savages, because they are hunting and gathering, but they don't have bows and arrows. Um, he, Franz Boas pointed out, I think quite rightly and powerfully, that that method is a very, very weak method. Because each one of those societies that we observe in today's world has its own particular history. And we need to learn about that particular history. It may be that they didn't climb the ladder of development. It may be that they had some very different past. Um, and so what he advocated was setting aside those evolutionary ladders and doing good fieldwork, good, good ethnographic fieldwork to find out what the particular histories of these societies were. And so that, that was a powerful critique. It didn't completely uh, remove that sort of... Uh, Lewis Henry Morgan style developmental evolutionary approach from anthropology. There was still some of that that happened in the 20th century. Uh, I'm thinking of people like Leslie White, for instance, who took an approach like that. Um, and of course, any the, 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 that approach sort of was carried on in the Marxist tradition because Marx was a big fan of Lewis Henry Morgan and this sort of developmental sequence idea. And so it cropped up again in the 20th century in various guises as a result of that. But for the most part, uh, most part, uh, cultural anthropologists and social anthropologists in Britain um, moved well away from any sort of approach that um, smacked of evolutionism because of Boaz's critique was considered a powerful critique, and I agree that it was a powerful critique. Um, the problem with the, their reaction to that critique was that they overreacted in a sense because what he was saying is let's not do that uh, that developmental thing. Let's not do the comparative method where you imagine that there's a ladder that societies climb. Um, he wasn't offering a critique of the Darwinian approach, which is all about variation and differential reproduction, because there really wasn't developed at that time. The only the only instance in which I know of that anybody in the 19th century developed a sort of truly Darwinian approach to cultural phenomena was a small group of uh, philologists uh, led by a German philologist named August Schleicher in about 18, in the 1860s, right after Darwin's first book came out. Uh, the Origin of Species is not his first book, but his first book on evolution. Um, August Schleicher noticed the, the similarities between the, the process that Darwin was describing and the process that language goes through of variation and differential reproduction. And he wrote a, a small book about that. But that didn't go anywhere. People didn't pick up on that. And a sort of Darwinian approach to culture and a Darwinian approach to human behavior didn't develop. And what I call this throwing, I don't know if you know this metaphor, but throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. That, uh, you know, when you, when you wash a baby, what you want to do is keep the baby and get rid of the bathwater. But if, if you throw the baby out too, you've made a huge mistake. And I feel as if uh, that essentially, in retrospect, 
was what happened with cultural anthropology is that they 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 quite rightly wanted to get rid of the bathwater of the uh, developmentalist um, approach and the comparative method as as Boas critiqued it. Um, but unfortunately, it ended up laying the foundation for this point of view that dominates even today in much of cultural anthropology that um, it's simply wrong to be evolutionary of, of any kind rather than um, – I, I actually think that if, if this, this clock could be run back uh, and if you could run it again, um, I think there is a neat complementarity between a Boasian view of each society having its own particular history and a, a Darwinian view of uh, a variation and differential reproduction, where there isn't a ladder that societies climb, but rather a sort of bush or a tree that grows, a, a phylogeny of societies. So they're related to each other, and they have their own individual histories and and, uh, and evolutionary pathways, if you want to call them that. Um, I, I, I think that actually, this is what I teach in a class uh, here at Rutgers, that if we could turn the clock back and rewind that and correct that error at the beginning of the, the 20th century, we might have ended up with a a nice synergism between a Darwinian approach that appreciates variation and differential reproduction and a Boasian approach that appreciates the individual particular histories of societies. So I think that that's the best answer I think I can give to that question. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, that makes sense, and it's interesting. Uh, let me just pick on, the, on that last part, because you're not okay. completely dismissing the Boasian approach, right? And that's interesting. No, Yes, please go ahead. Yeah. Well, I think he's misunderstood. I think, that critique, I think that critique that was presented in that short little paper is a powerful critique of the comparative method as it was being practiced in the 19th century. And, and the developmental approach taken by Lewis Henry Morgan and Tyler and Spencer and people like that. Uh, but I think that if he had been properly understood, he would not, we, we wouldn't have gone down this pathway of saying, well, then all of evolutionary approaches are bad. And I, no, I don't reject, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, of good ethnography. So um, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, I think he was quite right that we do need to have uh, an appreciation of and a detailed study of the individual histories of individual societies. So I, I wouldn't want to become, just, just because I'm pro-evolution in some sense, I wouldn't want to be cast as anti-Boasian. I'm actually a fan of Boas, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so that's really interesting. Could you tell us uh, how do you look at the relationship between biology and culture? Because it's somewhat difficult to establish. I've already talked with some people from cultural evolutionary theory, as I said, and with some evolutionary anthropologists and psychologists. And mm -hmm. I mean, it seems fairly obvious to me, at least with the knowledge that we have nowadays, that we can't understand how culture operates and where it comes from without a biological basis. But I would agree. On the, uh, yeah. But on the other hand, it would seem to me that it would still make sense to have uh, cultural processes uh, operating somewhat uh, independently mm -hmm. of biology and understanding the impact that they have both on on human cognition and maybe mm -hmm. also on human behavior would that make the sense behavior physiology yes i mean that's a gene culture coevolutionary approach mm -hmm. and yeah i'm uh, i don't really do gene culture coevolutionary work myself very much mm -hmm. uh but that's the the sort of broad framework in which i work in the sense that yes uh, 
Genes Create. Uh, there's a, a nice book on coevolution uh, by William Durham at Stanford that came out 25 years ago. And, you know, he argues that there's genetic mediation and cultural mediation. Genes create the environment in which culture traits exist. Culture traits wouldn't exist if not for our brains. Um, and by the same token, culture traits create the environment in which genes get selected. Because the, the culture allows us to change the environment in a variety of ways. And that's appreciated, I think, in many ways for certain physiological traits, like the evolution of lactose uh, absorption in adulthood. Or the evolution of... Um, uh, sickle cell anemia because humans change the environment through farming that increases the, uh, the incidence of malaria and that creates selection pressures on on uh, blood cells and so on. So I think for for some, for quite a few actual physical physiological traits, the gene culture coevolutionary relationship is appreciated. I think it's less well understood exactly what that relationship is for a lot of behavioral traits and. Uh, for which sorts of culture traits get picked up and selected and passed on and which don't. But we're, there are people working on that, and it's getting, I think, I think our understanding of that is developing quickly and getting much more sophisticated. But yeah, just, just to, to put a cap on that, I, uh, in, t in terms of the relationship between biology and culture, yeah, it's, it's, it's a story of, it's a dance. It's a gene culture coevolutionary dance through time where they're both evolving you know, at different rates and in different ways, but they, they interact with each other over time. I think that's a neat story and, and the right sort of perspective to take, yeah. Mm -hmm. But just to try to make these a little bit clearer, let's say, mm -hmm. when we're talking about gene culture coevolution, uh, we're referring to culture for long stretches of time operating as a part of the environment and exerting evol uh, selection pressures mm -hmm. on genes, on genetic evolution itself, right? But yeah. uh, isn't it also the case that a culture during the lifetime of a particular person or a particular society can also itself influence how people structure their societies, how sure. they think, and maybe some cognitive mechanisms as well. Oh, sure, sure, absolutely. And there's a whole field of cognitive anthropology that looks at, you know, the c cultural variations and how they influence cognition. And they, over time, they've made some strong claims, uh, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, things like that, that may be a little too strong in many contexts. Uh, but I think there's something to it. I mean, that, that, that uh, language and the culture in which we live shapes the way we think. It allows certain kinds of thinking to be easy, certain kinds of thinking to be more difficult. Um, sure, absolutely. I, I, I don't think any of my work relates directly to that, but I certainly appreciate that that's a fact, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. so maybe talking more specifically about your work, a very interesting thing that I found there is, is that uh, at a certain point you sort of separated behavior mm -hmm. from culture. Why was that? Yeah, so that's because... so. Uh, if you talk to anthropologists, you know, ever since E.B. Tyler came out with the first sort of scientific definition of culture, um, that complex whole, et cetera, that's where I got the title to, for my first book. Um, that title was sort of ironic because I actually don't like that, that, that definition of culture. Um, th there have been dozens and dozens and dozens of definitions of culture that have been promulgated by different anthropologists for different reasons. And part of the reason for that is because they have different ideas of what they want to do with the concept. You know, what, what is the concept for? What work is it going to do for us? And for me, I see my job essentially as that of a behavioral scientist. I want to explain why people do what they do. Right. And so for me, 
culture, the culture concept is a tool for doing that, a tool for explaining why people do what they do. Now, one approach that has been taken in the past is to subsume all of human behavior under the category of culture, which can create, it means that everything people do, right. that's a very, very common part of a lot of definitions of culture, is uh, that they include everything everybody does. All human behavior is, is, is somehow culture. Uh, that creates the illusion that you're somehow explaining behavior using the concept of culture because, hey, all behavior is culture. It actually sweeps the problem under the rug because you're not explaining anything. If all, all, your defini- all your explanations of behavior in terms of culture become circular because all, all, it's just all, it's all culture. All behavior is culture. Boom, you're done. So what I want to do is separate the two out so that I can understand better what causes people to do what they do um, using culture as one of my tools, one of the things that causes people to do what they do some of the time is culture, the things that they learn from other people, right? Socially transmitted information. Uh, sometimes it's not. Sometimes other things influence human behavior. There's lots of influences on human behavior. Hormones influence behavior. Uh, you know, other physiological processes, environmental factors. Lots of things influence human behavior. Uh, but if you take the approach that's taken by many cultural anthropologists of saying, well, all human behavior is somehow culture, then that that leads you to ignore all those other factors. And I have I actually have an example of the, the danger of doing that, the, the, the mistake that you can make if you assume that if people are doing something, it's their culture that's making them do it. And that comes from a more a recent project. You mentioned Dr. Athena Actipus that you've interviewed already. So she and I are co-directors of the Human Generosity Project. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we have field sites around the world. One of them is with a group of people in northeastern Uganda called the Ick. And uh, they're fairly famous among anthropologists, at least, and somewhat famous outside of anthropology as well, because of a book that was written about them published in the early 70s called The Mountain People by Colin Turnbull. Um, he did field work with them in the mid-60s. And he, we included them in the Human Generosity Project precisely because of his description of them as just about the worst people on earth, the most selfish people, the least generous people, just really stingy and awful and mean to each other. Um, and he, this is the, the mistake you make if you assume that all human behavior is attributable to culture in some sense. He assumed that because they were behaving in a particular way, in this very stingy, selfish, terrible way, that that was because of it culture, that they were learning this somehow from each other. Somehow it culture was, was leading to this behavior. And he found it so reprehensible and so despicable that he actually advocated that the ick be broken up by forcibly by the Ugandan government into groups of no more than 10 and, and spread around the country so that their culture would disappear because he thought it was such a noxious thing. Now, the mistake there was in assuming that the behavior that he was observing, which was real behavior, they really did, they really were quite selfish and quite stingy at the moment he observed them, he assumed that was because of a culture. Rather than having a point of view that said, okay, it, human behavior can be caused by many things, including many things that are not cultural. And in, that, in the instance where he was visiting them uh, in the mid-60s, they were undergoing a severe famine. Um, and when people undergo severe famines, they do things not because of culture, but because they're starving to death. And that includes shutting down social relationships and obsessing about food, becoming very selfish and stingy. And the same things have been documented in other places where people are undergoing the same, under, undergoing the same process. Um, and uh, so if he had had a different perspective and said that, well, culture 
um, is one thing that influences human behavior, but it's not the only thing. Maybe he could have gotten his mind around that, but instead of that, he observed a behavior. He assumed it was culture. What, we, we hired a postdoc to study them, Catherine Townsend, and what she has found in her fieldwork with them, she spent, uh, she was there for all of 2016 and then again in 17 and 18 for short periods, um, was that actually when things are, are good, they're very, they're permanently at this point very poor people. They're not wealthy people, but they're not starving to death. They're not having a famine. And in that circumstance, they're very generous people. They value generosity. They share a great deal. Um, they they uh, have a belief in uh, earth spirits, a sort of supernatural punishment belief in earth spirits called Kijowik that reward the generous and punish the stingy. So they have a lot of culture traits that support generosity. Um, so it's their culture is actually all about being a, a good person, being a generous person, being a cooperative person, as as you would find. They're former hunter-gatherers, and hunter-gatherers tend to have these sorts of ethics, very strong ethics of sharing. Um, so he, he got it, Turnbull got it wrong because he had a bad theory of culture and culture's relationship to behavior. He failed to separate out culture from behavior. So that's a long-winded answer to the question of why do you separate out culture from behavior? Because you, if you really want to, sep uh, want to explain behavior, you need to recognize culture as one of many influences on behavior. And therefore, you need to separate the two out. So for me, culture is socially transmitted information, um, even socially transmitted information that does not have any influence on behavior. Uh, we, we're, people are constantly transmitting information to each other for the fun of it sometimes or in the hopes that they might influence somebody else's behavior but failing to do so. That's what advertising is all about. I mean, we're, we're all bombarded by advertising. That's socially transmitted information. But most of it has no impact on us. Um, you know, I, I see advertisements for expensive washes, watches every day when I read the newspaper. I never buy one. Um, not interested in that. So they're failing to change my behavior. Um, so, yeah, I think separating the two out is essential. If, you're, if your goal is to explain behavior using culture, then you have to do that. Um, otherwise, you end up with these circular roundabout sort of delusional explanations of behavior where you're not really explaining behavior at all. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, and I okay. don't know if you agree, but it seems to me that many people have the tendency to create this dichotomy between biology or some innate aspects of human nature and then on the other end, the environment. And mm -hmm. when people talk about the environment, it's very usually they think that all that is environmental is cultural. Mm -hmm. that, that's a mistake. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, I mean, certainly for human beings, I would say culture, socially transmitted information is a bigger part of our environment than probably for any other species. But it's certainly not the entire thing. I mean, like, as I said, what the ick were experiencing was a, uh, a um, severe famine that was a product of a variety of things, um, including some human action. It was partly a result of British colonial policies that kept them away from their um, uh, hunting grounds where they had normally been hunting. But it was also environmental changes in terms of weather patterns and so on that led to short food shortages. So yeah, we're we're our environments include a whole range of things. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And another very interesting thing associated with that 
is that um, it's frequent it's frequent that uh, anthropologists when they're studying uh, different cultures and different peoples from different places let's say that people say one thing and mm -hmm. do another right that, that is yeah. apart yeah. from there being a mismatch between culture and behavior there's also a mismatch between what people communicate about mm -hmm. their behavior or about what's be uh, the motivations behind their behavior and right. what they really do in fact when we observe them right. behaving right. right so in some instances that could indicate uh that their behavior is a product of something other than culture. Obviously, what they're saying is 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 cultural. It's it's an attempt to socially transmit information. Um, you know, here's why I do what I do, or here's what I here are my values. Here's what I think. Here's what motivates me. Um, that's cultural. Uh, and if their behavior doesn't fit with that, then that could be a couple of reasons for that. One reason could be uh, that their behavior is a product of something other than culture. Another reason could be that their behavior is product of of a culture that is transmitted in a way that they're not necessarily aware of. Because culture, uh, this has been studied a lot by animal behaviorists. Obviously, animal, animals aren't, aren't talking to each other and spreading culture that way. But they observe each other's behavior. So they observe, they, information spreads among animals uh, you know, through observing what other animals are doing and how they react to certain things in their environment and so on. You know, is it a threat? Is it not a threat? You know, you pick up on what your conspecifics seem to think about something. It's been studied in great detail by animal behaviorists. Uh, and, and, and humans do the same thing. So when you see that sort of discrepancy between what people say and what people do, it could be that it's a culture saying, doing, doing one thing and behavior coming from a different place. And I can give you an example of that. Or it could be that there's culture being transmitted in different ways. And in one way, it's having an impact on behavior. In another way, it's not. So the the... In terms of um, the discrepancy between culture, what people say and what people do, and culture and behavior coming from some other place, my favorite example is from my own fieldwork because I know it's what I know the best. Um, I study these folks in Kenya called the Mukugoto, mm -hmm. um, and uh, they have a pattern that I stumbled across really back uh, 30 plus years ago, 30 almost 35 years ago. Um, of favoring daughters, at least at that time. When I've, I've only systematically measured this in the mid-1980s and in 1993. But as of those two time periods, I can't claim that they're still doing this, but as of those two time periods, they were fairly systematically, not 100% of the time, but fairly systematically biasing their behaviors in favor of their, their young daughters. So when the kids are small, they were holding their daughters more, nursing their daughters more, uh, keeping their daughters closer to them, and taking them more often for medical care. So all of these things biased the survivorship of book daughters. So the daughters survived longer and the daughters had better uh, growth performance than boys, than the sons. And uh, that doesn't fit at all with Mukugoto culture. If you ask them, at least the spoken culture, if you ask them, uh, you know, what do you favor, boys or girls? Which one do you want more of? Then they're very, they're quite adamant that they want more boys. They're, they're very, very, they're pro um, pro-son and pro-male. It's a very, it's, frankly, it's a very sex-biased society in that sense. Um, and yet, there's here they are favoring their daughters in these these subtle ways. Um, as far as I can tell, they're not aware that they're favoring their daughters. There's no awareness of this because of the, all the ways in which they're doing it are, are fairly subtle. 
And so you can do it without even being aware of it yourself. And when you're there observing, it doesn't, you can't just, don't, you'll see it. The only reason I was able to detect it is because I did systematic measurements. So it's not, a, it's not an overt thing. It's something you're going to be aware of consciously or whether you're doing it or someone else is doing it. So that means it could come out of a couple different places. It could be that it's something that's just non-cultural. It's not something they're learning culturally from anybody. Or it could be that it's something that they're learning um, subtly, that they learn through subtle ways that they're not consciously aware of, that they should be favoring daughters for some reason. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case because uh, I went, uh, in 1993 I did a systematic study. I had a sample of 40 kids, 40 babies basically, 20 boys, 20 girls, and uh, systematically measured the behavior of them and their caregivers. And um, just without really planning to do this, I ended up with equal numbers of mothers who had been born Mukugoto and were raising boys or raising girls and who had been born to other groups. And all of the other groups, one of the distinctive things about the other groups is that they're all wealthier and higher status groups, and there's evidence that they favor sons over daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, but, and yet when I measured their behavior, those women who had been born outside Mukugoto and had become Mukugoto through marriage um, had the same daughter bias in their behavior as everybody else. So in order for that to be something they picked up culturally, it would mean that they, they would have had to quickly and unconsciously lose whatever uh, they had learned growing up in, in a male bias society, a male favor, favoring society next door, and pick up on the Mukogoro norms of favoring daughters, even though no one talks about them, no one's aware of them. It's all very subtle. I find that very implausible. I think that the idea that there was cultural transmission in this subtle way in that instance to be just, just implausible because it would have had to take place essentially instantaneously after a woman arrives. Um, she'd have to unlearn what she knew and learn new stuff. So where does it come from? I think it comes from an adaptation, which was identified first uh, in the, something called the Trivers-Willard hypothesis mm-hmm. uh, that, that says, okay, if you have a situation where uh, parents have some way of predicting, not necessarily consciously, but some way of predicting that their sons are likely to do better reproductively than their daughters, then they should favor sons. If they have some way of predicting that their daughters will do better reproductively than their sons, they should favor daughters. And what allows parents of cross-species to predict this is what's called maternal condition. Um, If uh, maternal condition, if the situation in which the offspring are being reared is a very good situation, and if you're dealing especially with a polygynous species, where the males typically, if they're successful, have multiple mates, um, then you have a situation where the very successful males are going to way out reproduce the very the successful females, but where the unsuccessful males will under reproduce the the relatively unsuccessful females. So the Mukogoto case, they're they're at the bottom of the heap socioeconomically. They're former hunter gatherers who fairly recently got livestock. They're poor in terms of livestock. They're denigrated in terms of their ethnic status because they used to speak a different language. Um, and so, um, and there's a derogatory term that's used for them. So they're definitely at the low end of the whole thing. And I was able to document that uh, because of that, um, the males tend to have uh, delayed age at, at first reproduction. They have low rates of polygyny and they re- reproduce on average at a lower rate than their sisters do. So it makes sense then that the Mukugoro parents would be favoring daughters over sons because of this Trivers-Willard framework. 
Um, and they appear to be responding to that situation where daughters are likely to do better reproductively than sons by favoring the daughters, but they're not aware of it. And that makes sense in, in the sense that the conditions that would have favored the evolution of a Truvers-Willard mechanism, a sort of psychological mechanism for responding to the circumstances in which you're raising your offspring in these adaptive ways, that the, the circumstances that would have selected for that are very ancient. You know, they go back to the beginnings of, of uh, parental investment. And so if that's the case, whatever mechanism we have for that should be very ancient as well, and uh, it's, it's phylogenetically widespread. And it should be unconscious. It should not be something that we consciously deliberate about or that we're aware of or that we have to get cultural information to do. It should be something that is just triggered easily by the circumstance that we're not even aware of it. So that, that, that's the case. That I, I went on about that because I think it's a, a good and fairly well-documented instance in which there is a behavior pattern that is occurring uh, not because of culture. Um, if anything, if culture is having an impact on the behavioral pattern, uh, given that they their culture is one that's male biased, it would be to reduce the female favoritism right. and increase the po the positive treatment of sons. Mm -hmm. So maybe what I'm observing is not even as, as extreme as it would be if they didn't have this uh, this cultural tradition that oh we love boys more than girls and we really want to have more boys than girls, uh, even though their behavior goes goes in this other direction. Does that all make sense? Yes, okay. and, and uh, leaving aside for a minute the underlying mechanism that is behind that sort of behavior that, that people adopt, let's say, mm -hmm. um, w do you know why is it that people uh, come up with these explanations or justifications for their behavior or why they talk about their behavior uh, in the sense that uh, it really differs a lot from what they really do. I mean, mm -hmm, is, it, mm -hmm. is it, for example, that uh, people, because they live in a certain community or society where they have a certain set of shared beliefs or mm -hmm. values, that people have to talk about their behavior that way to present themselves in a positive li uh, light to others? Or, mm -hmm. or do you think rather that it is simply that people don't have conscious access to, right. to, to their own motivations and mm -hmm. they don't pay attention really consciously to what they're doing and then they simply come up with a post-hoc post -hoc. explanation. Yeah, both. Yeah. I think it's both. So in the Mukagoto case, they, have the, they, had, they do have some incentive to claim that they favor boys when asked the question uh, because they are in the process of trying to be Masai. Yeah, I was, so what I was saying was that the Mukagoto... In, in their instance, they, they have an incentive to sort of create a, a, some propaganda about how Maasai they are. Um, you know, that they, they really are true Maasai because like true Maasai, they favor boys. And, you know, we, we Maasai favor boys. In fact, I had a, um, a, a field assistant who was a local woman who said, yeah, we, we Maasai favor boys. That's clear. Um, and uh, so the incentive is that that makes them more Maasai in a sense. So that can happen. But on the other hand, you're absolutely right that I think people have, uh, in many cases, they have relatively poor access to the real reasons why they make the decisions they do. But this, that's something that's more in the realm of psychology uh, than in the realm of anthropology. But I, I, reading across disciplines into psychology, 
I'm convinced that yes, people, including me, including you, all of us, we we like to pretend that we have uh, agency and, and conscious have consciously deliberated the various things we do, but in fact, uh, we've got um, unconscious minds that are quite busy uh, all the time figuring out what we're going to do next. There's a metaphor that was that I use in class sometimes. It was depicted in um, an article in the New York Times years ago on this topic. Um, of a, a tiger with a monkey on its back. And so the tiger represents the unconscious mind, this big, powerful animal, the unconscious mind. And it's, it's, it's running along, it's going along in its own direction. And the monkey is a, it's, it's much smaller than the tiger, that's important. Uh, it's a talking monkey, so it's, it's the conscious mind, it can talk. And very importantly, um, it's sitting backwards on the tiger. So it's looking, it's, it's looking at where the tiger has just gone. And in the cartoon that illustrated this, it's also holding a steering wheel that's connected to nothing. Um, and so the monkey is, tells a story about why the tiger just did what it did. Why did the tiger just go there, looking back at what the tiger just did, not forward. Um, and that, so that's, that's, in a sense, it's maybe an extreme depiction, but I think it's kind of clever idea that a lot of what the conscious mind is doing is post-hoc rationalizations. You know, we're, our, our brains are busy deciding what to do, and then after the fact we say, oh, well, here, here's why I did that. I had good reasons for doing that. Here they, here they are. I just came up with them. <laughs> um, but again, that's the realm of psychology. I think that's fascinating, and I really like that, um, that metaphor. But it's, as I said, the realm of psychology more than the realm of anthropology, so I'm no expert on how that works. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but then it could definitely be the case that people simply pick up a set of uh, shared beliefs or values mm-hmm. from the community or the society they are born in, and then uh, when, as, when asked about why they did something mm-hmm. or how they behave, they simply say what other people think is good behavior or yeah. proper behavior or the right thing to do or something right. like that. Right, something like that. Yeah, and I think that a failure to recognize that leads to, can lead to a certain naivete. So I was, um, I got this a couple of times during my career where I was proposing to, uh, do research into these sorts of subtle ways that people aren't aware of that their behavior and their um, what they say and what they do don't match up. And I got re- very negative reaction a couple of times from a couple of cultural anthropologists. One was anonymous. It was in a, in reaction to a proposal I had written back in the early 1990s. And uh, I had proposed a method for gaining insights into these sorts of subtle things by uh, using the interview situation as an experimental situation and looking at how changes in the audience present during the interview had an impact on what people said that they wouldn't be aware of, but that inevitably we adjust who we are depending on the audience present. And uh, I had one review from a very negative reviewer who said, this is, this is not what we do. What we ethnographers do is we go to a place and we live there long enough and gain the trust of the people long enough that eventually they tell us the truth about why they do what they do. As if, as if they know it. <laughs> and that's assuming that they know the truth about why they do what they do. And I don't think anybody really, and, you know, it doesn't matter where you're going. You, you run up against this problem of post-hoc rationalizations. Um, using the tools, that, that what are the tools of post-hoc rationalization? As you say, it's whatever cultural traditions are around you that you can use as the raw material for fashioning a, an explanation. You use those. Um, 
And then again, years later, I ran up against the same thing, same basic idea in a conversation with a cultural anthropologist who said essentially that, no, what, what we do is we gain people's trust. And then when they, when they finally trust us, they tell us the truth about why they do what they do. And again, I just feel it's extremely naive because it assumes that they know why, why they do what they do. And uh, that's, that's an illusion. That, that implies that we know why we do what we do. And uh, I think there's ample evidence that, I mean, we meaning the sort of people in the academic world, we're no better than anybody else at, at, at that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah that, that's interesting. And I mean, um, we're talking about ethnographic work and ethnographic material that people gather. Couldn't it be the case then uh, when we think about things like human universals that it could be the case that if we don't take into account this mismatch between what people say and what they do, that we could be underestimating the degree to which human nature is universal. Because sometimes we could be, uh, we could be maybe gathering data and uh, interpreting them as, as, being, as cultures being much more diverse mm -hmm. than they really are. Then in terms of what their impact on behavior, mm -hmm. that you scrape away the culture, the behaviors are all are, are relatively similar. Uh, and the culture creates a, I think I, I'm just trying to interpret what you're saying, that the culture creates a sort of illusion, a, a, a surface layer at which there appears right. to be tremendous diversity. Right. Scrape that away and people are actually doing very, very similar things. I think that's true. I don't, do you know of anybody who's studied that systematically? Um, that would be interesting to look into. Um, I, I know of, you know, various studies that have looked at discrepancies between culture and behavior, but I don't know of any systematic examination, but that, that would, that's certainly interesting insight. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. would be interesting. I've already interviewed a couple of people on human universals. But okay, it good. Was, it was basically human universals um, about very specific phenomena, like artistic phenomena mm -hmm. uh, and... Yeah, mo mostly that. Mostly okay, that. right. right. Well, I think that probably has to be how it starts. You have to start with the specifics and move on, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, right. Uh, okay, so now let's move on to another topic of your work that is the one of uh, human cooperation. Okay. Uh, and you wrote about a very interesting phenomenon that is the one of uh, fitness interdependence. And it's interesting because we usually talk about uh, in biology and anthropology that has a biological basis about kin selection and reciprocal altruism. But mm -hmm. uh, what is fitness interdependence really about? So I see it. So it's not a phrase that we... we Dr. Tippis and uh, I forget how many co-authors, a large number of co-authors, we published something on that in Nature Human Behavior about maybe a year and a half ago. Um, and that came out of a workshop that we organized um, okay. at Arizona State on that topic. Uh, we, nobody at that workshop can claim to have invented the idea. I think the, the, the phrase fitness interdependence goes back to the 1970s. Uh, but the, the way we view it is as a very large umbrella. The, the, the thing that, that drives... Uh, cooperation, also conflict, because fitness interdependence can be negative. You know, what what what's good for you can be bad for me. Um, so a very very broad umbrella in which to put a variety of different models uh, of what drives cooperation. Say, is fitness interdependence. It can be you can you can 
two, two individuals may be interdependent in terms of their fit, fitness, and, and, and say in a positive sense where what's good for you is good for me for a whole variety of different reasons. So one of them is kinship. So one of them is that we have common ancestors. And as a result of having common ancestors, we have overlapping genomes. And because we have overlapping genomes, I can help my genes get into future generations by helping you and vice versa. So that's kin selection. It may be that we're in a situation where we have a, an opportunity to swap favors back and forth. So that's reciprocity. But that that's just barely scratches the surface. There's lots of ways in which... Uh, two individuals or, or multiple individuals can become interdependent um, beyond simply common ancestry or swapping favors. Um, one of them that's very similar to the swapping favors, but not quite the same, is risk pooling systems. So in this, the Human Generosity Project that Dr. Tippis and I co-direct, we've focused a lot of our attention on, on uh, systems of risk pooling that have elements that are similar to reciprocity, but not quite the same in the sense that um, there is no necessary repayment expected. So the one that I know the best um, is, again, from my field work, that's why I know it the best, is uh, the Maasai system. The Maasai have a system called Osotwa, which means, it translates literally as umbilical cord. Uh, but what they use, they use that word metaphorically is sort of very powerful metaphor to refer to a relationship that they establish or a contractual relationship and also a very sacred relationship that they establish with a fellow Maasai person mm -hmm. um, where say, say you and I are both Maasai you, you agree to take on some of my risk and I agree to take on some of your risk so if you get in trouble, you're, you Maasai herd livestock and so say your livestock are killed off by a disease you need some extra livestock to rebuild you can call upon me, your Osotwa partner and I'm obligated to help you if I'm able to do so and so, but you might have six or eight Osotwa partners, and then I might have six or eight other Osotwa partners. So this creates a very nice network across the landscape of sort of social insurance. And this, it, the Maasai are by no means the only people who do this. It's very common around the world. Uh, it's nice that they have a, a very nice metaphor for it, very helpful for teaching purposes and so on. But it's a very common sort of thing. Social insurance, this sort of informal social insurance is very common. So that's a, that's a situation in which you're creating a relationship for fitness interdependence that is, uh, in, in some sense, metaphorically like kinship. The umbilical cord metaphor creates that sort of uh, psychology of kinship, taps into the psychology of kinship. But it's nice because it leaves it ambiguous who's the mother and who's the fetus in any instance. That can switch back and forth. Who's the needy one? Who's the, who's the one who's helping? That, that can switch back and forth. Uh, but it's not really reciprocal either because there isn't any necessarily re repayment. In fact, they're very adamant that when you're in one of these situations, you cannot talk about payment and you cannot talk about debt. That, that a gift to an OSOTA partner does, is not a payment of any kind and it does not create debt. There's no obligation to repay. The, the, the obligation is just to help those in need. If, some, if you've agreed to be somebody's OSOTA partner and they're in need and you can't help them, you're obligated to do that. But they're not, not obligated to pay you back. They're only obligated to help you if you get in trouble. Uh, and if you ask for help. So it doesn't quite fit in either the kinch selection framework or the reciprocity framework. It's a third framework. Another way in which people get fitness interdependence is simply through co-residence. If you're living with people, if you're not related to them, even if you don't like them, uh, if you're living with them, and especially if you're living with them in a situation where it's a subsist subsistence economy, and transportation is limited, you can't get away. You know, Like most of our ancestors spent their lives on foot. Mm -hmm. They had no other option. 
then simply living with a group of people is going to create a fitness interdependence because you have to get the work done of subsistence. And you may also need to defend your community against other communities if there's warfare, something like that. And that's so that's going to be true, again, regardless of kinship, regardless of, of uh, you know, relationships of reciprocity, just living with each other. And then very extreme situations like uh, being in the same combat unit in warfare um, can lead to, you know, even among non-relatives, obviously most combat units don't include relatives in, in today's world. Uh, that can lead to very high degrees of fitness interdependence where, you know, you, your survival depends on somebody else in the unit looking out for you and vice versa. And that can lead to, you know, self-sacrifice and all kinds of things um, that appear paradoxical, but they do make a certain amount of sense because, again, you, you need to keep those people alive because your life depends on them as well. And then the, the neat thing, one of this is a little bit of a sidebar, but a little bit like Osotwa where the way they talk about it is in terms of a sort of a kinship relationship, those sorts of extreme instances of fitness interdependence also very often lead people to start talking about people as kin, even if they're not kin. So in um, in warfare, there's this band of brothers tradition. The, the, right. the phrase band of brothers, I think, goes back to a Shakespeare play. Um, but it's, it's about you know, men in the context of warfare in the same combat unit they become brothers in a metaphorical sense and often very powerfully so in a way that motivates you know strong emotions and strong willingness to to self-sacrifice um which i think is fascinating i think it's fascinating both because of the behaviors that it generates its connection to evolutionary theory the fitness interdependence um and because of this this uh way in which people very commonly you know get their minds around it by using kinship as a metaphor it's a very common thing to do because we already have all this psychology and all this vocabulary for kinship. We understand that. So we're going to bring that to bear in non-kinship context so that we can we can understand it better. I think that's fascinating. We don't know all that much about it, but I think it's fascinating. We had another sort of building on that fitness interdependence uh, article. We had another one in evolution and human behavior recently on this phenomenon of kin terms and fitness interdependence. Mm-hmm. So that's where that, that's where all this is coming from. Mm-hmm. And this phenomenon of fitness interdependence, do you know if it is established on a dyadic basis or on a group basis? I mean, oh, you were talking right. about the Osotua partners, right? right? And you referred to the fact that uh, each person um, can have six, eight Osotua partners. Yeah. But is, is it the case that they establish a dyadic relationship with each one of them? Or yes. that it functions basically uh, within a group as a unit. Right, it's dyadic. So Osotra partnerships are dyadic. There, there's, a, there's a sort of a courtship process that goes through. It's a little bit like a marriage, right. in that there's a sort of a courtship between people to see if they're compatible. Um, and then you make an agreement that you're going to be Osotra partners. Um, so that's dyadic. Uh, it doesn't have to work that way, though. There are societies where there are sort of broad sharing norms where anyone who is in need can ask for help from anybody. You don't necessarily set up a formal dyadic relationship. So it can work both ways. Uh, in Fiji, um, we have one of our field sites in the Human Generosity Project is in Fiji. We have a postdoc named Matt Gervais who works there. And uh, there's a custom there called kere-kere, which I believe, I don't speak Fijian, but I believe it means to request. And the ethic is, as I understand it, um, 
as a, as a person who doesn't actually work in Fiji, my understanding is that the ethic is that any Fijian has the right to carry carry to request help from any other Fijian. If you are in need, then you have a legitimate right to ask for help from any other Fijian. And if they're able to help you, they're supposed to do so. But there are also rules about what's what's legitimate to carry carry. So if, it, if it's a resource that you can easily obtain for yourself, um, there's no reason to carry carry it. So there's you know there's structure around this. It's not just just uh, just uh, wide open. But yeah, that, it can work that way too. It can also be that there's a, a broad ethic of of mutual aid, of sharing, and mutual support. Um, it doesn't have to be dyadic. The Osito case, it's dyadic. Um, yeah. I think it's a it's, it's it, it works well for them, uh, being that way. You know you know who to go to for help. They know who to, know who to go to for help. Um, everybody, all the property remains private, um, so everyone has an incentive to manage it well, manage it effectively. There's, there's, they don't, you know, collectivize the property and create a comfortable resource management problem. They keep it private so that everybody has an incentive to manage their livestock well. So that then that's a good thing because then it's there for other people to get when they're in need. It's very, it's very, it's a brilliant system, really. And is fitness interdependence a biological phenomenon as well? Or? Oh well, fitness interdependence, yeah, it is by definition because we're we're talking about fitness. So if we're, uh, you can talk about independence more broadly. Um, and psychologists do. There's a long tradition in psychology of talking about interdependence without the fitness component to it. And that's fine. I mean, you don't always have to refer to fitness. So there's a couple of different approaches to that. One is um, uh, you know, to, to ask the question. This is an approach that we're using in, in a uh, – we're developing a scale called the Perceived Fitness Interdependence Scale. You know, give people a list of people that they're are in their social world. What's your perception of your inter interdependence with these people? When they do well, does that mean you do well? You know, do you series of questions like that? So you can be it can be specific to a specific relationship with a specific person, or another approach that's being taken by people we're collaborating with at the University of Amsterdam, especially a guy named a psychologist named Dan Balliot, um, is what he calls situational interdependence, where in a particular situation, what are the dynamics of the interdependence? Is it a is it a sort of mutualism, a, a dependence that's positive for both parties? Is it hierarchical, sort of a boss and employee sort of interdependence? There's lots of different ways in which different situations can engender different styles, different types of interdependence. So it, that's all looking at interdependence um, without worrying about the fitness in, implications of the interdependence. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is totally fine because it's often very difficult to know exactly what the fitness inter inter implications are. But then, if you're taking a broader evolutionary framework, then you have to think about it in terms of fitness and, you know, what in the long run, what are going to be the fitness implications of mm -hmm. this kind of interdependence or that kind of interdependence? Yeah, mm -hmm. I think but, there's a complementarity. Yeah, mm -hmm. but uh, as a biological phenomenon, and when it works on a group basis, do you think that it could possibly point toward the group selection mechanism sure. operating on humans? Yeah, uh, yeah. so group selection would be, an, that would be a, an example of a fitness interdependence. And you could get that a couple of different ways. You could get it through the biological group selection mechanism, uh, the kind of thing imagined by Wynne Edwards uh, way back in the 60s, where you have a group of organisms that uh, are highly interdependent 
and uh, our selection favors a, a willingness to self-sacrifice for the benefit of the group because of that high interdependence. And the, that has been important at certain points in, in the evolution of life. You know, the, the major transitions in evolution, the, the, the emergence of the cooperative genome, that's, that's, a, that's a group selection is sort of a phenomenon in a sense. The emergence of multicellular, multicellularity, multicellular organisms, that's a group selection is sort of a thing that happened multiple times. Um, so yeah, absolutely, you can get it that way. I don't think that among humans, I'm not a, I'm not a big uh, advocate of biological group selection among humans. Right. Uh, I, th I find it implausible that, that biological group selection played much of a role in human evolution because of the the porousness of human groups. They don't have the the requisite um, dis discreteness that that you need for biological group selection. In my view, there's people who disagree. Um, but it's uh, the, the, there's another way you can get a, a certain form of group selection, which is cultural group selection, right. uh, which is, I think, a huge topic and a very promising topic. But it's very different because with cultural group selection, the groups are defined not in terms of biology, some biological parameter, mm -hmm. like who you're mating with, but rather in terms of shared culture. So, um, you know, human groups, and, and that, that doesn't mean that the, the groups have to be uh, very discreet and retain their membership over long periods of time. You can have people moving from group to group, and you can still get cultural group selection, as long as when they move from group to group, they adopt the local culture traits. Sure. As long as the as long as the cultural group remains a definable thing, you can get cultural cultural group selection in the sense that you have cultural groups competing against one another. Mm -hmm. So uh, an example I use in class a lot is, um, you know. Uh, firms in a market economy. So in any particular town you have uh, restaurants. All the restaurants in the town are competing with each other for customers. And uh, the ways that they do those things are cultural. So the, this is cultural group selection because each one is a group and the way that they cook the food, the way that they serve the food and so on and so forth, all that's cultural. So the definitions of the groups are all cultural and they're competing with each other. Some succeed, some fail. And the, the people, the employees, can be moving from firm to firm, from restaurant to restaurant, and you know, as long as they're adopting the 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 practices of the restaurant that they're currently working for, you still have the you know the the separateness of the cultural units that can allow for cultural group selection. Um, that's just to illustrate the concept. It's not especially interesting. Um, yeah, I think, uh, but the question with cultural group selection becomes what, going back to the idea of gene culture coevolution, if you have a process of cultural group selection, what impact will that have on human psychology? Right. Uh, so one possibility is you have very, very strong cultural group selection um, where the success of the cultural group depends very much on uh, the individual members of the group suppressing their individual selfish desires. Um, and this is reflected in things like a lot of most organizations have rules against nepotism. You know, you don't you don't don't indulge your desire to favor your favor your kin. It's against the rules. It'll it'll help your kin, but it'll damage the organization. And it rules against sexual harassment. So don't indulge your desire to uh, you know seek out sexual opportunities in the workplace because that may be satisfying an evolutionary desire you have, but it's going to damage the workplace as a as a unit. So if there's that kind of tension and if, if the demands of the group on the individual are strong enough, you could get, you know, selection pressure in favor of self-sacrifice and pro-sociality. Mm -hmm. But 
and, and that's so yeah, absolutely. I think that's possible. But I think there's more to it than that, in the sense that cultural groups are porous. You can move from group to group. Not always. Mm-hmm. Try to, you can't do that in wartime. If you're if you're you know the cultural group selection happening is two groups that are at war with each other, and you try to move from group to group in that situation, you'll be considered a traitor, and it can be dangerous. Uh, but in in many situations, it is possible to move from group to group. To you know, say that the things aren't working out as well for me here as they would be over there, so I'm going to move. Um, and uh, as a result of that, I think, and I argue in the the book uh, that I co-authored with my wife Beth Leach, meeting at Grand Central, argue that one of the perhaps underappreciated effects of cultural group selection on human psychology may have been to endow us with a sort of what I call flexible human uh, coalitional psychology. That we, we know that we have a coalitional psychology. Human beings, it's well documented that human beings are eager to, to identify the coalitions with which they belong and coalitions with which other people belong and to root for them. You see it in sports very easily, see it in lots of contexts. It's very easy to trigger. Uh, this is explored by social psychologists for the past 50 years. Um, but it's, it's also a flexible coalitional psychology. You can, you can fairly easily manipulate it. So that people's uh, what the, the group they identify with can go from the small group to the large group or shift from group to group. So that flexibility is is also very adaptive because it allows us to, at the same time that why we are in a particular group to really feel that we belong with that group, and to um, to work for its betterment and so on and so forth. When it's time to go to a different group, we have that ability to drop that and pick up another group and say, I'm going to do that now. And uh, that's kind of just a bit surprising, but um, it's in principle very adaptive. Mm-hmm. So that would be my argument is that cultural group selection is a great idea, but it's it's sort of exactly what its implications are for human psychology is not all that well understood right now. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've also decided to ask you that because group selection, particularly at the biological level, is a very contentious topic. Yes, and absolutely. there are only a handful of people that believe that it really operates, at least on humans. I mean, uh, recently, people like David Sloan Wilson and even E.O. Sure. E. Wilson think yep. that is true, and even people like Jonathan Haidt and Robert Sapolsky. But most mm-hmm. biologists. Sam, Sam yeah. But so, most, most biologists, I think, don't agree, at least with group selection operating at a biological level, maybe at among the cultural humans. level. Yeah, yeah, among humans, sure. Yeah, maybe, as far as maybe. I know, that's true, yeah. Mm-hmm. What I teach my students is that, you know, this is, what I, what I try, to, try to get across to them is that there isn't a dogma, that there's a diversity of opinions. I'm going to give you my opinion, but be aware that there are these other people who have these other, other opinions, so that, and I don't want people coming out of my classes thinking that there is a dogma. Uh, it's a science is a process. It's a conversation. And so, yeah, there are folks who take a different line. I don't agree with them, but you know, time will tell that. So when, again, going back to Athena Actipus back when she was a graduate student, uh, at the university of Pennsylvania with Rob Kurzban, the two of them co-authored a, a chapter in a edited volume called, um, I think it was called the footprints of, of multi-level selection. And they just made a very, um, I think, simple argument, very, very persuasive argument to me that, I don't, this is another metaphor, I don't know if you know, the proof is in the pudding, um, that uh, you, uh, 
you got to do the research. You have to go out and you have to create hypotheses and you have to test the hypotheses and you have to see whether the data support the idea of selection at this level or at that level or whatever it might be, rather than, you know, arguments about theory and concepts and so on are all well and good and they're, they're very, very necessary. But at the end of the day, you have to say the job of science is to explain the real world. Are there real world phenomena that cannot be explained by any other means than by biological group selection, say. And to me, in humans, I don't see them. Other folks look at humans and they see them. So, yeah. 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 Uh, well, okay. Uh, I don't think we have enough time today to explore the topic of costly signaling. Okay. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, probably not. Don't, I, don't, yeah. I don't have all that much to say about costly signaling, except that uh, there's a lot of other kinds of signaling, too. <laughs> That's my main message: is that uh, costly signaling theory is is great stuff. It's all well and good, but that signaling theory is broader than that. Yeah, that's my main message. I think. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so m maybe we could leave that topic to another time. Sure. If you want. <laughs> yeah, okay, great. Okay, okay. So before we go, uh, apart from the books that I referred to in the introduction and things like that, would you like to tell people where would be the easiest places for them to find your work on the internet? Sure. I have a well. I have a web page that's maintained by my department. I, it's not very very up to date. Um, I have a Google Scholar page, so that's probably a good place to go. Um, I have an Amazon author page, but that's just about the books. Um, and then there's the Human Generosity Project page. So uh, the, it's humangenerosity.org, and it's, I think, a quite nice site if you want to learn about our project and our various field sites. And uh, we do laboratory experiments. We do agent-based modeling. We do outreach to the, to the broader community. It's, I think, quite interesting. So, yeah, I, I would encourage everybody to visit the Human Generosity Project site if they're interested, yeah. Okay great. okay, great. So I will be leaving all of that in the description box of the video. And Dr. Kronk, it was again a real pleasure to have you on the show. And maybe in the future, we could have another conversation. Okay, absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this, Ricardo. I appreciate it. Hi there, thank you for coming to my channel and for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Uh, otherwise, I also have a PayPal and Subscribestar. And if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perelga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, Yane Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, and Dr. Jerry Muller, Herbert Gintis, and Rutger Voss, and also my three producers, Isar Webb, Rosie, and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.